blackbird singing in the dead of night. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame, here with my co-host, Chantal Lemire. Hi, guys. And our guest today is Brendan Samuels. Hello. Um, I'm really glad to have him on. Uh, he's a friend of mine uh, that I've met now because he's in the same program as me, the neuroscience program. And he's here today to tell us about his work with birds in Scott McDougall Shackleton's lab. So why don't I hand it off to him? Uh, tell us about your work. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I work with Scott McDougall Shackleton. I should point out I also work with Jessica Gron. Uh, she's a music cognitive neuroscientist on campus. Uh, this project certainly taps into both of their collective expertise. Uh, so the work that I do is very much interdisciplinary. Uh, I work with birds, as you mentioned, uh, and I'm having them do a behavioral experiment uh, that I also test on human subjects at the same time. Um, and what we're interested in studying for this uh, study is whether birds are capable of perceiving accents in sounds perhaps in a similar way to how humans do when we listen to music, for instance. Um, so among humans, the ability to pick up on uh, a beat in a sound, such as music, seems to be universal. Uh, even babies are capable of doing this. Uh, it's been demonstrated in cultures all over the world with very different musical styles. Uh, but we still don't know if this is something that is unique to humans or whether perhaps we share this with other animals that also produce complex acoustic signals. Uh, so a very common um, example that people think of when I, I tell them about this work is parrots. Uh, you may have seen videos on, online on social media of parrots that are really good at synchronizing their movement to music. You can play them pop music, and they do this with gusto. They're very excited about it. Uh, but interestingly, if you were to play this music for a non-human primate, their ability to synchronize with it is actually quite poor. Um, and it makes you think, well, they share so much in common with us in terms of the anatomy of our brains and behavior. Why do we have this ability and they don't? What do we possibly share with parrots that uh, these other primates don't have? Um, and so the research that I'm doing uh, seeks to kind of examine whether birds could be a model for this behavior as it occurs in humans. Um, but it's also very much exploratory. Uh, we don't know whether the animals will be able to do this task or not. And the purpose of the experiment is to sort of find out. Interesting. Can you tell me more about what you get? Because um, that's like an interesting study to have humans on the one hand and birds on the other. So what do you ask your participants, birds and humans, to do? Good question. Uh, so conventionally, if you wanted to study beat perception in an animal, what's been done in the past is you try and have the animal synchronize its movement to something like music or a metronome. Uh, and I mentioned that many animals are really poor at this. Uh, parrots are a notable exception that can do it. It's been shown in a sea lion, a really exceptional case that was able to do it. But synchronizing to a beat and perceiving a beat are actually different things. Mm. In theory, if you were to synchronize to something first, you have to perceive the regularity in the sound and then match your movements to it. But it could be possible that an animal can perceive the regularity but can't match their movements. Uh, an example I always tell people is if you were to play Backstreet Boys for an elephant and say, dance along to this, well, there are simply motor constraints here that would make that impractical. An, an elephant can't move that fast. 
so what I do is uh, I've actually developed a, a new paradigm um, to test an animal's beat perception ability, but without relying on synchronization. And what we do is we play these rhythmic sounds for the subject, um, and we ask the subject to discriminate between sounds that have a strong beat and sounds that have a weak beat. Uh, and they do this by pressing buttons on a keyboard, in the case of humans. For the birds, we've trained them to peck keys inside of something called an operant testing box. What's an operant testing box? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, I, had a, I had a totally different question, sorry. I'll ask it after. So operant testing boxes have been used actually for decades now. Uh, they're most famous for uh, studies done with rats and pigeons. Um, the idea is that you can use uh, conditioning to teach an animal to perform a desired behavior in exchange for a food reward. So it's and like Pavlovian in a way, Very right? much so, okay. yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, that was... a. Uh, Musician asking about a, a neuroscience uh, commonly used method. And now and I'll, I'll have a neuroscientist. I'll have a neuroscientist ask about something I'm naive about in terms of music, which is like kind of what exactly is a beat? <laughs> also a really good question. Um, so this is actually a little bit um, divisive in the field in that we don't have rigid definitions of what all these things mean. Uh, in the context of my study, I use the term beat to refer to this regular pulse that you would feel while you're listening to a sound. For instance, in music, it would be what you would say tap along to if I were to say synchronize your movement somehow to uh, the sound. Um, what are What is unique about uh, the beat and these accents that we feel is that they're not actually based on a physical parameter of the sound, such as the pitch or the volume. It's actually something that our, our brain puts together based on the acoustic information that we take in. Uh, and we impose this sort of regular pulse, these accents, um, which are this sort of emphasis that we place on events in time. So, yeah, so I guess um, you can have a beat that's, um, that's not like on different time points that there isn't necessarily even a sound at that point. Right. Or uh there's a lot of sounds in between that aren't necessarily part of that beat but you can hear it and t pull it out tease it out from the the sound that you're is, is that sort of where you're getting at right so one key uh aspect of the sounds that we use for my experiments are that when you have what you described just now is um a beat that falls on silent events where there is no sound playing that actually weakens the sense of beat overall as it unfolds over time um when you have uh, a pattern let's say, of tones that line up perfectly uh, with this accent that you feel. That produces a very strong sense of beat. I can actually play an example for you if you'd like. Sure. So this is an example of uh, a strong beat sound that we play for uh, subjects in my experiment. And it's the sort of thing that if I were to ask you to tap along with this, generally you would have a fairly easy time doing so. Um, I'll also play you an example of a sound with a weaker beat. This would be much harder to tap along to. And this notion of what is a strong and what is a weak sense of beat is purely based on uh, human accounts. 
uh, of what we perceive, it's still very much a mystery uh, uh, as to whether animals experience these accents in the same way we do. So getting back to the what it, with the operating box? Is Op- that... Operant. 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 Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so what, let's say a bird, you know, uh, p- responds to a tone sequence with a strong beat. What happens? They get some. They are rewarded somehow. Essentially, so this is a, a fundamental difference between working with animal subjects and with human subjects. Uh, animals are very inclined to work towards uh, earning a food reward. Uh, the w- reward we give to the birds are mealworms. It's their absolute favorite snack. Um, and if they produce a correct response, a desired behavior by pecking the correct key following the sound that they hear, then they're rewarded with access to eat, uh, mealworms. Uh, with humans, uh, we match the paradigm pretty closely, but instead we just give them points on a screen where we tell them if you get the answer correct, you'll get a point. If you get the answer incorrect, you don't get a point. Okay, interesting. Um, and what about yourself? So you, the, this combination of music and animals, do you come back? Do you, do you come to this from a musical background or? So I took uh, classical piano lessons for quite a long time, actually, and it's still very much an important part of my life. Um, But I also have quite a bit of uh, experience working with birds. Um, Where these sort of intersect at first in my life uh, is that I play uh, classical piano and I also have an African gray parrot that lives with me. And she really enjoys the melodies that I play on the piano. She's a fantastic whistler. Uh, she can kind of play along with me. We, we visited retirement homes several times and seniors really enjoy listening to that. Uh, but it really kind of um, spurred curiosity as to how a bird might experience music in a different way to humans. Mm. Uh, we can make inferences about their perception, but it actually is very difficult to make statements about what an animal perceives just based on behavior. And- Somehow, somehow, I'm imagining you looking deep in the eyes of your of your of your dear pet, pet <laughs> parrot and thinking, "Are you loving this music as much as I am?" And just anthropomorphizing that sounds about as right. much as you can, and thinking, "You know what? I want to find out." And I, then I wonder that Western. sometimes myself when a dog <laughs> I play violin and when a dog uh, howls along with me, whether that's a, like a a duet we're playing or um, a request to uh, cut it out. But you mentioned parrots a few times here, so is that the type of bird that you work with, or do you work with a different type of bird? I actually do not work with uh, parrots. Uh, parrots have received a lot of attention in this field because, as I mentioned, they seem to be able to synchronize their behavior to human music. Uh, I actually work with the cousin of the parrot, which is a songbird. Uh, specifically, the species I work with is called the European starling. Uh, you may have encountered them in your day-to-day life. They're a huge pest problem in North America. Um, actually, originally they're from Europe. They were introduced by a man in the 1890s who released a hundred of them in time. I think it was in New York, uh, and he wanted North America to have all of the birds Shakespeare ever mentioned in his writing. He was a huge Shakespeare enthusiast, <laughs> and from these 100 birds he released, there are now over 200 million of them oh, in wow. North America. They are really prolific. They're very intelligent and adaptive. Uh, so we have 15 birds housed uh, at an avian research facility on campus. Uh, they were caught from outside. Um, we plan to test them for the next few months, and then they're subsequently going to be released again. I mean, it sounds like a nice little vacation from the stresses of being outside it's honestly not that bad most yeah. of the time when they're not being tested they get to eat as much as they want they, they have toys i like to think they they 
enjoy captivity as much as they possibly could. <laughs> oh, that's really that's really interesting. <laughs> I, I like I like how you um, um, for your work. It's really interesting to me that you can do um, two different models, so to speak. I guess <laughs> uh, humans being the, being the one model uh, at the same time. Um, how have you found that? Just uh, in terms of the amount of work, because I mean it's hard enough to to do a project that entails one one working with one animal or just humans, it's... but to do both. Uh, tell us how you managed it to is, deal with that. It is an ongoing saga. So I get asked this actually quite regularly by my lab mates. What do you prefer working with, humans or birds? Which one is worse? Uh, in reality, <laughs> there are pros and cons to both. There are aspects I enjoyed of both. Um, working with the birds, of course, is time consuming because in addition to testing these birds, you have to maintain care for them, uh, which is a 24-7 operation. Uh, you leave the humans to be responsible for themselves. Pretty right? much. Yeah. I assume they go home and they shower. It's not really my problem. Um, we have to assume they shower, but nah, I don't know if everybody... Not, not everyone. Uh, with the birds, everything has to be done in a very tightly controlled way. So we test the birds every single day at the same time within 15 minutes or so. Uh, birds are very much creatures of routine, and you want to make sure they are not stressed out when you're testing them. Uh, there's the many aspects of, of caring for them. The birds I work with happen to be extremely messy, uh, so that takes up a great deal of time. I'm fortunate to have uh, many volunteers that uh, help me out with a lot of this. Um, working with the humans is also challenging, though, uh, because unlike with the birds, if the humans don't do your task successfully, you have to worry about hurting their feelings. Mm. Um, and given that this task is actually quite difficult, I've had participants come in, do their very best, and simply bomb. And it could be that they just don't have strong beat perception capability. And you do your best to make sure that they're, they understand the study, that everybody experiences these sounds differently. But uh, certainly there are different challenges posed by working with humans and, and birds. The other aspect, of course, happens to everyone uh, where human subjects just don't show up and you just kind of go on with your day. I don't have that problem with the birds. You've never the lost birds are, The birds are always there, ready to go. And they actually are very enthusiastic once you get them trained and they learn, hey, if I do the right steps here, you're going to give me a reward for it. So um, we call it bird school. I put them in a carrier that we call the school bus uh, and we take them off to bird school. They have their two-hour testing session. They eat until they're full uh, and we go from there. So... Um you know, wanting to compare, I imagine you tried to make the task for the, hum the human task as similar to the bird task. Uh, so is there a reinforcement? Um, what's the reward or punishment if you don't do or you do the right. task well for the human? So um, you're right. We did want to make sure the human and bird experiments were approximately equivalent since we'll be comparing them, uh, the responses to the individual sounds. Uh, so with the birds, of course, we give them mealworms. That's their favorite food reward. If they produce an incorrect response, then we turn the light off in uh, the operant testing box for a few seconds, just so they've learned, okay, I've made a mistake. I should do this differently next time. Uh, with the humans, for whatever reason, people come into these studies and they have this drive to be competitive and do as, as good as they can. And so you can actually really stoke this by telling them, hey, do as well as you can on this because your score will be compared with other people. Um, and if you tell, if you give them a little uh, display in the corner of the screen that shows their points balance, tells them how many responses they produce correctly, uh, that seems to be a strong motivator for people. 
And in the human study, so you so you don't ask them to tap along with these sound we items. We do not. You ask them to hear them and then respond as to whether they like perceived a strong or a weak kind right. of thing. Okay, interesting. Uh, actually, that's a challenge uh, with this in that people have when they identify the rule of the task, uh, that they have to pay attention to the regularity of the sound, their first instinct is to tap along. Um, and so in addition to delivering this instruction at the beginning saying, hey, please sit still, you have to watch them through the whole session and tell them, like, please sit still. I see you tapping your foot there. We don't want you doing that because that would actually make the task considerably easier. Right. Oh, I guess, yeah. I, I didn't, that didn't occur to me that they're not allowed to move. So, right. I mean, and... Um, if they did, then it would, that's what makes it really hard, hey? It is a really tough thing to tease apart because theoretically, if they have a, a grasp of the beat, they could imagine moving and that could be just as potent a cue as actually moving one's foot. Mm. Um, but to minimize this, we ask them to stay still. So um, before when we were chatting uh, about your work, uh, I think you were talking a little bit about like individual differences between what people come in, you know, they might have different experience beforehand. So like what sort of... Uh, what if sort of diff individual differences were you, were you looking at? So the most common individual difference comes from music expertise. And that if you learn to play an instrument um, at a professional level or an expert level, then you tend to have a stronger uh, ability to pick up on a beat or to synchronize to a beat. I, I think to an extent this also generalizes to dancers, people who uh, have a lot of experience interacting with music and matching their movements to it. Uh, but beyond that, it is highly variable in that some people just don't have beat perception. I've tested individuals with a lot of music expertise, and they don't, they can't identify the beat in the sounds. Um, we don't know why all this variability exists. I think it highlights how subjective beat perception is, uh, and that sounds really sound different to everybody who hears them. Um, maybe this this isn't necessarily related to your work, but now it kind of uh, brought a question to mind. Sure. Um, from you actually being able to detect this person is not so good at beat perception and this person, they're pretty good. Could we go the opposite way and then say, okay, good versus bad beat perception, who's going to be better at mu at playing musical instruments after that? That's a good question. Because, <laughs> you know, there's always this debate, and I, if you've talked to people who who have kids, or if you've ever discussed this with your parents, you might have, if you had, you know, music training, um, you know, it, forcing the kid to, like, practice as much as they can. Are they going to become a good musician and end up liking it? Or, um, it need like, do you have to you have to let them just do it because they want to? And which, which way is going to end up uh, better for the kid or with a better musician in the end? That is a really good question, and, and I think motivation through music training makes a big difference. I remember years of absolutely hating being put through a classical piano, <laughs> and it was a chore to practice, and I was shy, and I didn't want people to judge how my practicing went, and I sort of found things about it that I really loved later in my training to the point that has carried me until now, uh, but I don't have a good answer to that. I think that beat, uh, beat perception ability could be predictive of uh, being a strong music performer. Um, but we do see a lot of variability, and it, it's sort of hard to make sense of that. But you, you must have done the test. Did you end up uh, getting good or bad at beat perception? <laughs> you know, it's I have 
too much experience creating the experiment. I, I joke that I've developed like tinnitus for this, the stimuli that I use <laughs> because sometimes I go to bed and I just I hear stimuli in my head. <laughs> it's quite terrible. Um, we do a follow-up task at the end of the experiment that has been used in previous research called the beat alignment uh, test where we actually ask people to tap along uh, to music that we play for them or we present music clips with an isochronous tone pattern overlaid and we t ask them to identify, hey, does this line up with the music or is it slightly off with the beat? Um, and we can use these to kind of index how strong a beat perceiver someone is outside of my experiment. And that's something that you add it sort of at the end of the... So this paradigm uh, is new, but these tasks that we do at the end uh, of a session are quite short. They've been around for quite a while. We just sort of did this so that we can assess uh, individuals, when we get weird data, let's say in the experiment, someone has done really poorly and we, we want to make sense of it, we can then compare how they've done on these other tasks and then look at the questionnaire that we administer, see how much music experience they have, and uh, make inferences based on that. Okay. So this is a, this is really exciting work and it's really interesting and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what results you get in the end. Me too. Um, <laughs> so uh, now that we've heard a little bit about your, your work, maybe we can ask a question a little bit about you. Absolutely. Um, so uh, you're here, you're now in your second year in master's, right? Try not to think about it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, my question is, you know, what brought you here? Where did you, what, how, what did you do for your undergraduate degree? Where did you do it, and uh, why did you come to Western? I did my undergrad uh, in psychology at the University of Guelph. I actually started off interested in veterinary sciences there. Uh, I really loved living in Guelph. I loved the atmosphere, and my experiences there were invaluable. Um, when I decided I wanted to do uh, a master's and study neuroscience, I checked out a few schools in Ontario, and um, I met with Jessica Gron initially, uh, to ask about a project that was totally unrelated to work with birds. I was interested in how um, memory for music is preserved in cases of dementia. Um, and she sort of shrank my ambition, which she really respected down to size and said, hey, this would be a really difficult project to do in two years for masters. And it was only the last question of my interview with her uh, where this topic uh, for this project was born and that I asked well, what about beat perception, rhythm perception in other animals? And she said, well, actually, it so happens there's been talk of this collaborative effort between myself and another bird researcher here uh, for quite a while, and we haven't found the right student to take it on. Maybe expertise is lacking, interest is lacking, and I just raised my hand and said, I will totally do this. This sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and talking to loved ones and friends and family about my work now, they say, it really sounds like you are where you should be. This sounds like a project that is totally catered to your interests. So I'm pretty pumped about it. It's a privilege to be able to work on this every day. So this, the search, you didn't have to search very far. you know. You Honestly, I interviewed at a couple other schools, and there were people I was interested in working with and, and research that was, of course, interesting. But nothing jumped off the page quite like this did for me. Well, that's that's cool. I mean, it's good to have you here, and I've, I've enjoyed uh, seeing around in the in the neuroscience program. Um, I think we have time for just a few, a little to to hear a little bit more uh, about about you and about your work. Um, so, I'm gonna ask that we pause. Sorry, okay. no problem. Sorry. Just keep distracting me. I'm sorry. Um, the pause is that I was wondering: Did we explain who Jess 
Jessica Garan? I don't name? think I did. I just stated she was my so supervisor. I, I thought, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's it. I had no idea who that was. Okay. Yeah, at the beginning no, they you introduced... Did, you did say. I yeah. think, she, did I think say. he did oh. say that. I said she's a music cognitive neuroscientist. Okay. Um, you, okay, so we're going to go back in. And how much time will we have after this? If you want, I can talk about what it's like to actually work with birds, because I get asked this okay. a lot. Okay, so we'll final up and be like, grad student life, what do you do on a day-to-day? Okay, okay. here we go. Okay. Okay, so that's great. It's uh, it's good to hear that you're happy here at Western, and uh, we're happy to have you. <laughs> so, um, on your on a day your day to day grind as a grad student, um, maybe you could tell us uh, what it's like to be a bird slash human researcher. Oh boy, uh, well, anyone who works with research animals can tell you that it is a time consuming endeavor. Uh, you. I find many aspects of it enjoyable, so often while I'm working, it doesn't feel quite like work. Um, but you have to pay mind to doing things in a timely fashion every single day. I mentioned birds have to be tested at the same day, time every day. Um, there are weekly tasks we have to do, such as cleaning. The birds get baths every week, which they really, really enjoy. Um, I'd say I split my time probably 70-30 between the birds and the humans at the moment. Uh, but Again, it doesn't feel like work. The birds are a lot of fun. Uh, people often ask me what it's like to work with uh, wild-caught birds because unlike having uh, a pet bird, for instance, which is very much used to being around people, these birds can be kind of skittish. They're wary of people. Uh, they've grown up outside and avoiding human contact. Uh, so when you're dealing with these animals, you have to bear this in mind and be cautious that you don't habituate them too much, but also you want them to get kind of used to you as, a, as an experimenter. One thing I found helpful is uh, when I work with the birds, I am talking constantly. I talk to them. I talk to myself. Um, the birds, because this is a music study, are actually named after uh, classical composers. So it's fun to be able to refer to them by name and say, Beethoven, stop what you're doing. That, that's really unhygienic. Um, uh, but, that bird was well named, I think. Yeah. Um, but birds learn to recognize each other by their voices. So I don't have a whole lot of science to back this up, but I have found my birds are much calmer and used to being around me relative to other volunteers I have come in with them. Well, wow, you know, that's, uh, that's a really cool project, and uh, uh, we're glad to have you on the show to talk about it. Thanks for uh, having we're, me. We're, we're mostly out of time, so my last question I'm going to ask is uh, if people uh, are really interested in your work and they want to read more about it and, uh, you know, maybe contact you, how, uh, how can they find you and your work? Sure. Um, my uh, supervisor, Jessica Gron, uh, runs a great website. Um, it's her name, jessicagrun.com, uh, and under the people section uh, of that website, you can find a little blurb about my research and my contact information. Just how do you spell Gran for the people? <laughs> G-R-A-H-N. Okay, jessicagrun.com. I'm sure people will go there. Okay, so uh, with that, um, this has been Gradcast, uh, SOGS production. Uh, I've been your host, Ariel Frame, uh, with my co-host, Chantal Lemire, and we've been interviewing Brendan Samuels. Uh, if you want to listen to some of our other shows, we have it all online at gradcast.ca. Uh, you can also download the podcast on any of the podcast provider apps on Android, iOS, or whatever type of phone you got. Uh, if you want to uh, contact us because you want to be on the show, you're a grad student here at Western, or you 
uh, want to join us uh, as a committee member, uh, then you can contact us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And um, also goes without saying, if you're listening to this on the radio, that we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM, 6 p.m. on Tuesdays. So with that, thank you for listening. Thanks. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life